Well, welcome back to this series we're calling uh, Behind Closed Doors. And there are a lot of people here because there's a 6.30 pitch, I know. So that's why you came early. I know who you are. All right, all right. Um, this is Behind Closed Doors. If you weren't here last week, let me just kind of catch you up. Is that we're following one of Jesus' directives, and it kind of goes like this, that if you have questions about life, any part of life uh, at, at all, rather than, you know, pull your friends, what do you think I ought to do, or ask your parents, or go to Barnes & Noble, or, you know, figure out what Oprah wants you to do. Not saying that that's all bad, necessarily, but Jesus says, if you have questions about your life, why don't you ask me? I have some really strong thoughts on, on the matter of your life. And uh, he said it this way. He said, um, seek and you will find, knock on my door and I'll open it. And you can seek what you're actually, you can find what you're seeking. So that's what we're doing this month. We're just knocking on God's door and we're asking God some pretty tough questions. Questions that you guys submitted a couple months ago going, what's God had to say about this, about that? And, and here we, we're going to open up his word then and kind of find out what it is that he has to say about some of our questions, especially this month in the area of our relationships and our sexuality. A couple weeks ago, Scott kind of kicked it off with this, this, uh, this, this front door and this, this last door. It's the same door. It's, it's the bedroom door. It says, this is, this is God's, when he had this idea, let there be marriage, let there be intimacy, let there be sexuality. This is kind of what he had in mind. And it was really good. And the question we looked at the first week is, is it possible to start with that door and end with the same door? Even though it's a little banged up, a little faded or whatever, can you go through your whole life and not surrender all your goals and dreams? Or is it just kind of a, no, nah, it's just impossible. Then last week we looked at this, this next door down, is the broken door. I mean, maybe someone kicked in your door and took something from you, or you kicked your door and, and you got out. And if you look at some key you know, truths that apply to all relationships, and we admitted, we kind of found this out, that, that, that according to God's word, sexual mistakes that we make, they're in a category all on their own. Not worse, just different. And we also looked at this, is that according to God's word, like we just saying, it's never too late. To, to, to walk back towards God's plan for your life, for your body, for your sexuality, for your singleness, for your marriage. It's not too late. It's never too late. And I got to tell you, today, tonight's message might be the, probably the toughest message I've ever delivered. Not because I'm not sure what I'm going to say. I know exactly what I'm going to say. And I, here's why it's tough is because I know what I'm about to say is going to fall kind of hard, kind of heavy on people on either side of the issue that we're going to talk about tonight. And that issue is this. What's the Bible say? What's God teach or say about this, this thing called homosexuality? And here's probably the harder question of that. How do I respond with God's answer? What do I do with what God is about to teach us? What do I do with that? Now, there's some ground rules for tonight. I never kind of laid ground rules out for, for a message, but I'm going to lay out four. The first one would be this is, is if, you're, if you're the parent of a pre-middle school child and you're not ready to have this conversation with your child, now would be the time to run to the lobby, okay? And, you know, it, I, 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 would, I did not have this this conversation with my kids in, in, in elementary school. I just didn't have it. We didn't have it until my son Jordan was watching the news one day and some words got thrown out on the newscast and he looked at his mom and went, hey, what's gay? And she said, you got to talk to your dad, you know, like <laughs> parents do. And so we had that conversation later. But so the first one is if you're not ready to have that conversation, that's okay. Totally support you in that. You might want to head to the lobby. The second thing would be this is I'm going to ask you to agree to something. And that is that you'll stay for the whole message. I mean, if I say something in the next, you know, 30, so minutes, all right, that you won't just go get, you know, get ticked off and say, I'm out of here. I, I, I disagree with that and just get up and, and stomp out. This is not a 50%. I heard 50% of what he heard, what he said, and that was enough and I left. If you only hear 50% of what I hear, you're going to come to some really, really wrong conclusions. So stay for the whole thing. The third thing is if you do stay, um, even if you agree with this or disagree with this, whatever, please don't disrupt. 
You mean, don't shout out going, that's right, and don't shout out going, that's wrong. Just shh, be quiet, all right? And the fourth one would be this. I'm not in any way saying that everything I'm about to say is right. I'm very, I know this, I'm very capable of making mistakes. I've made a couple in my life, all right? I, I'm very capable of making mistakes. I do believe that what I'm about to teach comes right from God's Word. And somewhere in this next 30 minutes or so, there's some truth that's worth kicking around. There's some truth worth wrestling with, at least considering. I want to unpack five questions tonight. If you want to write these down, it'd be great. But the, the first question would be this. What does the Bible, what's God teach about, not, not homosexuality, but just sexuality? What, what does God teach, what's the Bible teach about sexuality? Before we get to this topic of homosexuality, let's just talk, let's review what we've been learning, what God's been teaching us over the last couple of months in here about sexuality. And it kind of goes like this. That the, we are created, everyone in this room, everyone on the planet is created in the image of God. And that makes us sexual beings. God created us male and female in his image. The second thing is, we're not our own. We're not just these independent agents going, you know, I'm my own boss. I can do what I want. Our bodies belong to God because he created us. And then when we screwed up our life, he paid for us with the life of his own son. He bought us. And now he lives in us. The Bible says that we're a temple and his very presence lives inside of us. We're not our own. We're created in his image. We're not our own. Third thing would be this. All followers of Jesus are commanded to run away from sexual immorality. Any sexual activity or pursuits that fall short of what God says is, that's what I want for your life. Anything outside of that, he describes with two words. It's either a sin or it's immorality. It means it falls short of what I want for your life. We're supposed to run away from that. The fourth thing we already talked on would be this. Sexual sins, sexual mistakes are different than all the other sins you might commit. Not, they're not, the Bible doesn't say they're worse they're just different. They're in a different category because they have more effect on your, on your body and on the people around you than anything else. You can get high, you can smoke, you can steal, something like that. I'm telling you, you can get over that a lot easier than if you mess up in this area of your life. And the fifth one would be this. All followers of Jesus are promised. The spiritual power. The spiritual power to keep sexual drives and desires in check until they can be expressed in a manner that honors God. That's what God teaches about sexuality, not hetero or homosexual, just sexuality in, in general. So here's the next question. Let's just get into this subject tonight, all right? What would make a person gay? Why is a person gay? And there's, there's three different thoughts that I've kind of, kind of encountered in my last 30 or 40 years, years of ministry. And, and here's, I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure there are more than three, but here's three different thoughts that I've encountered as to why a person might be oriented towards the same sex. These aren't going to apply to everyone. This may not be your story or your friend's stories. But, but I will say this. I didn't get this from a book. I didn't go to a seminar on what makes people gay. I haven't been watching CNN or, you know, taking a, a, a class. Everything I'm about to say just comes from my experience with talking with people over the last 30 years of ministry. So these aren't these aren't examples that someone told me about. These are conversations I've had, right? Maybe that gives me a little credibility. I don't know. The first one would be this. One, 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 one thing I've encountered is it's environmental. It's environmental. I mean, there's something in the way I've, I've lived and the people around me, the environment around me. And, and you could kind of go in different directions with this. Like my parents, my parental influence kind of had something to do with me, you know, becoming uh, homosexually oriented. And it looks like this. A, parent, a person has a parent that was too strong or not strong enough. Or, or possibly you, know, you, you were so wounded by your perception of your parents' dysfunctional relationship that you kind of rejected that whole paradigm. I've actually talked to people who say, they look back and go, you know what, my, my parents' marriage was so jacked up. My dad treated my mom this way. My mom treated my dad this way. I don't want anything to do with that. And so I kind of looked at some different options for myself. I've had those conversations. 
Under environment, you might, it might be categorized as this. Peer pressure, peer acceptance, or peer rejection. A young boy or girl, you know, doesn't fit into the cultural expectations or norm. You look at a guy and say, you're a little too feminine than what you should be. Or you look at a girl and say, you're a little too masculine. And so they're ridiculed by their peers. They're called names. They're persecuted. And kind of as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Or maybe when accepted by others who kind of face the same persecution or ridicule, they begin to see themselves and define themselves that way. Really close friend of mine, I remember the conversation he had. He looked at me and says, hey, Jim, I've been called faggot all my life. Man, that's what I am. So, you know, when someone that you perceive to be really important in your life says something to you over and over and over, and we've all been on the receiving end of that, haven't we? You're not, the, you're not this enough, you're not this enough, you're not that. You begin to think that way. You begin to believe it. And their environment, the, the third one that I've kind of run into would be experience, just personal experience. As a child or a young adult, while, while our moral code, call it our personality, our identity, was still kind of forming, figuring out who we are, we were exposed to a sexual experience, either by choice or just kind of experimenting or maybe at the hands of abuse, homosexual or heterosexual abuse. And we begin to define ourselves, good or bad, by our perception of what happened to us. I can't say this about all homosexuals or something like that, but I, I will say this. Most of... The guys that I've talked to that find themselves knocking on this door look back and say something happened when I was a kid involuntarily, a sexual experience, and it, it played a key part in forming who I am today. It changed me. Not, not, not every, but most of the guys I've talked to. So environmental, that would be the first, what makes a person gay? Some people say, well, it's environmental. Some people say, no, it's biological. It's biological. Some people attribute homosexual orientation to a normal biological chemical makeup. Just like some people are genetically programmed to be heterosexual, some people are, you know, are driven by their genetics to be homosexual. That's why a person can honestly say, I've always been this way. I've always felt this way. When I was a little kid, you know, I, I felt this way. This is who I am. It's just a normal biological chemical makeup. Some other people say homosexual orientation is an abnormal biological chemical makeup or even an imbalance. Again, the same people say, I've always felt this way. I don't know if it's right or wrong. I just know that I've always felt this way. And religious people tend to object to that one. They, they, they say, well, no, neither one of those can be true because why would God create someone a certain way and then condemn them for something that's not their fault? Which leads to the third thing that people say, this is why a person's gay, is it's spiritual. It's, it's, it may be environmental, it may be biological, but some people say, no, it's a spiritual deal. It's not biological, it's spiritual. They could be heterosexual if they really wanted to be. If they tried harder, they'd feel different. They just need to repent. They just need to change their minds and decide, I'm not going to be gay anymore. I'm not going to be gay anymore. I'm not. <laughs> They're intentionally choosing to reject God's truth and embrace a lie. Therefore, God is justified in condemning them. My question would be this. By show of hands, how many of us in this room have ever committed a non-homosexual sin in your life? Ready, go. Okay, that would be everyone, all right? Um, you know, if all God wanted to do is condemn you... He's got enough on you. He doesn't really need to build a bigger case. Maybe condemnation is not his agenda. Here's what I want to throw out today. And I've never read this, you know, and I've never heard anybody preach this before. And this might be my last sermon. But anyway, here's, here's my conclusion. <laughs> my mouth's drying out, all right? This is, I've just been in God's word, you know, and that's what I've kind of come to. And you don't have to believe me. As a matter of fact, don't believe me just because I said this. You ought to read it for yourself. I think you ought to at least think about it. What if it's not any one of those alone? 
but it's kind of all three in some combination, combining to create a kind of a perfect storm. What do I mean? I mean, it's, you can't just say it's environmental. That, don't, that doesn't stand up in court. You know, you, if your dad hit your mom, that doesn't mean you can hit your wife. I'm sorry, Judge, it was environmental. Oh, okay, well, you can hit her again. No, you, know, you, can't, you can't say that. If everybody at school made fun of you, that doesn't mean you can bring a gun to school. If somebody does something bad to you, it may be understandable, but it doesn't make it permissible for you to do something bad to someone else. See, something in your history may explain why you behave the way you behave, or I behave the way I behave, but it doesn't excuse it or permit it. Here's what I want to throw out. I want to look back at this idea of biology in the context of what we've been talking about here over the last few months, especially in this XFC series. As we've been looking at hard questions, why does bad stuff happen and what's sin doing to our world? So just kind of hang with me on this, okay? You don't have to take notes, just listen. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created everything and everyone very good. People, bodies, flesh, hormones, relationships, sexuality, all created good, very, very good. But three chapters into the Bible, the whole thing falls apart because sin enters the world. And the first, the first in line to reap the kind of repercussions, the fallout of sin, you know what they were? Our bodies and our relationships. Read it, chapter 3 of Genesis. The first thing that kind of falls apart is our bodies and, and our relationships. And if that's true... If all of creation is in bondage to decay, that's what Romans 8 says. If everything that's made out of the dust of the earth, including us, our DNA, our chemicals, our genetic code, if the normal tendency for all of creation, all flesh is to move towards decay, then why would it be inconsistent with God's word to conclude your own flesh is going to betray you? Your own flesh is going to betray you. I mean, everything else does. The ground does. Weather doesn't behave like it's supposed to do. People don't do what they're supposed to do. My health doesn't do what I want it to do. Why is it hard to believe that our genetic makeup, our sexuality and our desires, why, why do we think that they're going to do what they're supposed to do? And here's the part of this issue that both sides are going to take kind of issue with. But remember, you promised to stay to the end. You can't leave, all right? Here it is. The homosexual is going to hear me say that and say, so you're saying that my sexual orientation is a sin? No, I'm saying your sexual orientation is one more victim of the curse of sin on God's very good world. Now, think about what I just said. Are you saying, Jim, that being a homosexual person is not a sin? Yeah, I think that's what I just said. But think about it. What drives our sexual orientation? And you can pick. It's my environment. It's my biology. It's my spirituality. All three fell apart in Genesis chapter 3. All three were cursed. Having a homosexual orientation is no more a sin than any other of the fallout of sin. What causes dysfunction in Robin and me? What causes shame and pain and insecurity and control issues in my marriage? And the answer is sin. What causes the ground to work against us, according to the Bible? What causes the weather to misbehave, according to the Bible? Why, what causes everything in my life to move towards disorder? What causes my body to age and get sick and get old, cancer cells to divide, and cars to crash into another? The answer is sin. Your sin? No. Just sin. Sin has destroyed everything important. Everything's broken. And being a person with a homosexual orientation is no more a sin than being a person who struggles with control issues or addictive urges or greed or selfishness or heterosexual desires or workaholic orientation or, or tendencies. It's all the fallout of, of sin. Paul, listen to Paul, who wrote a big chunk of the Bible, right? He says this. So I find this law, this rule, this principle at work. And here it is. Ready? 
See if this sounds like kind of the rule for your life. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. Anybody? I want to do good, and evil, that word evil's not satanic, demonic, you know, no, that's not it at all. It, 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 evil is just the opposite of very good. Anything short of very good, God's very good plan, the Bible uses the word evil for it. When I want to do good, when I want to follow God, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, kind of in who I really am inside, I delight in God's law. I want to follow him. But I see another law at work in the members of my flesh, my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law. What's the law? It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Of sin at work within my members, my hands, my arms, and all my other parts. What a wretched man I am. Then he asked this great question. I bet I've prayed this a thousand times. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. That's our only hope. So then... I myself in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law. I want to do what God wants me to do. But in my sinful nature, in my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Paul says, I got a war waging in my body. My mind knows what God says is true, but my body, my flesh wants something really different. And I'm pulled between those two directions. Anybody ever feel like that? That'd be all of us, I think. Me too. I'm not saying Paul's gay. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not trying to put that in the Bible. But he is admitting that his flesh is a prisoner to the same decay as the rest of creation. And even though he wants to do and be and live the life God wants him to do and be and live, he says, you know what? I can't make my body do what I want it to do. I pray that it does. I even know that it should do. It just won't do what I want it to do. You know what that's called? It's called Temptation. He says, I got this civil war. I got this tug of war going on in my, in my life. Does that sound familiar? I want to do good and my flesh wants to do this stuff. And it's temptation. Now, my next question is, is it a sin to be tempted? Is temptation a sin? Oh, I, let's get more specific. Raise your hand if you've ever been tempted to sin. Ready? Go. Okay, you're as evil as everyone else on the planet. Okay, see, here's the thing. Is, if sin, it, it's not a sin to be tempted to do something other than what God wants for you. And here's how I know that. Because Jesus was tempted. The Bible says this. Listen, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest, and a priest is a guy that connects you to God. We don't have a connector to God named Jesus who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a, we, we don't have a Jesus that doesn't understand our, our lives. We have one. We have a Jesus who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. And you sit there going, there is no way Jesus has wrestled with the same stuff I've wrestled with. Then the Bible's a lie. It says that he's been tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. He, he never pursued that sin. See, having a body that is wired up for whatever reason, chemical, biology, whatever, someone did something. Having a body that for whatever reason is tempted to do something outside of God's perfect plan for your life, be that heterosexual or homosexual, that's not the sin. What you do with that temptation, how you handle temptation and desires and tendencies, orientation, that's another story. The guy named James, he's one of the very false first followers of Jesus. Listen, he says, when tempted, he didn't say if you're ever tempted. He knows you're going to be tempted. When tempted, no one should ever say, see, this is God's fault. God's tempting me. I mean, we've all done that. God, why are you doing this to me? No one should say God's tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, now, this means this. God's goal is not to create anyone in a situation that's impossible and then zap them for it. That's so inconsistent with the nature of God. I'm going to create you like this and then send you to hell for it. That's just not God. That's not consistent with anything we've learned about God. He goes on and says this, but each one is tempted when, and here's why, by his own evil desire, his own less than the goodness of God desires, my flesh desires. 
That's when you're tempted, when he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Let me kind of translate it into English, okay? A person's character is tested and revealed when he's dragged away from what God says is right. What drags him away? His own fleshly desires and enticed. And that word enticed, it's the same word for take the bait. And that same word is used in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 when Satan looked at Adam and Eve, and he, this is the bait he uses. You don't need God. Don't, 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 let, don't let God tell you what to do. It's not fair that God wouldn't let you have what you want to have. He said that about the, the fruit. He says that about anything else in our lives. It's not fair. You don't have to follow God. James writes on, see then after you take the bait, your fleshly desires and your, and your wants, that's what drives your action. And just like a woman who conceives a child, it's a matter of time until she gives birth. Sin gives, or desires give birth to, to sin and sin leads to death. It'll kill you every time. Being tempted is not a sin, but falling and acting on those temptations, that's what God says is a sin. So wait, wait, wait. you're saying being gay isn't a sin, but engaging in homosexual behavior is? Let me put it this way. Being human with flesh means you're sexual. That's not a sin. But God says that any sexual activity pursued out of what he determines is right and acceptable, Jim, not Jim, not flatterers, God says that's sin. It falls short of what I want for you. Which leads me to the third question. How does God respond to gay people? Does God think about them? Or in other words, if, if a gay person knocked on God's door and says, so what do you want to say to me? What would God say? What would God say to a to a gay man or woman who knocks on, on his door. Well, quoting from God's word, I believe God would say the same thing he said to us last week. I made you, and I love you. And like all of my creation, homosexual, heterosexual, I'm telling you, your flesh is in bondage to decay, and it's betrayed you. Physically, emotionally, sexually, but let me remind you, you're not your own. You're mine. And just because you feel it, one, or even if you're tempted to pursue it and blame it on biology or something that happened years ago, it doesn't mean that that's my will for your life. Sexual activity outside the context of marriage that Scott talked about a couple weeks ago, be that homosexual or heterosexual, not Jim, not Flatterance, God says it's out, it's out of bounds. It's a sin. Every reference in the Bible that speaks to sexuality or homosexuality condemns not the person that's being pulled or enticed or tempted to pursue homosexual behavior, but the person who's actually engaging in homosexual behavior. So if that's true, here's the question. What am I as a gay person, or what is my friend as a gay person, what are they supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And the answer is the same thing everybody has to do, gay or straight. Run. Flee from sexual sin and run to the power of God. The same power of God that's available to all followers of Jesus. He promises, I'll never leave you. I'll walk through every day with you and promise to give you enough power to walk the road that I'm commanding you to walk in any area of your life, including and maybe even especially your sexuality. And he promises to give you enough grace and forgiveness, more than enough. Not as permission to go on and pursue any sin, but as assurance that, let me just remind you, you are saved not by your good things you do and you're not disqualified by the mistakes and your struggle to follow God. The only reason any of us are saved is because we're depending on our trust in Jesus Christ. So let me kind of wrap this, not wrap it up, but kind of summarize up to this point. So it's not a sin to be gay. It's just a sin if I act on it. Yeah. 
The same way a heterosexual is not allowed to act on his or her sexual desires outside of where God says it's okay. It's what God says. Now, that leads me to this next one. How should gay people respond to God? And I'm going to be really honest with you. I'd be mad. I'd be angry. I'd be really frustrated. Maybe devastated would be a better word. And I'd look at God and I'd say things like, that's not fair. That's impossible. At least heterosexuals have a hope of someday expressing their, their sexuality. What's my hope? What's the hope for me? If I was sitting in here tonight and I was gay, you know, I, I'd feel betrayed and I'd, I'd feel ripped off. And you know why I'd feel ripped off? Because you have been. You've been ripped off, but not by God. You've been ripped off by sin. Sin destroys everything important. Sin has ripped off everything that's dear to you. You know what? I feel as ripped off as my wife Robin feels, who's battled depression for the last 15 years, and she can't do and be all the things she wants to do and be. Her flesh won't let her. It's betrayed her. It won't cooperate. She hasn't been allowed to participate in huge chunks of of the life that you get to participate in because her body won't let her get out of bed. Robin's prayed for years. Would you please fix me? Will you please fix me? You You know what you're feeling right now? You know what God's answer has been? No. But I'm on your side. No. But I'll be your strength. And you ask Robin, ask her, is depression a sin? No, depression is not a sin. But ask her, she'll say, boy, it's easy to sin when you're depressed, though. You know what? I feel as devastated as those hundreds of, maybe thousands of people in California who are staring at the ashes that used to be their home. That's how I'd feel. Thinking, why did this happen to me? I didn't ask for this. I didn't do anything wrong. Why me? Why did this fall on me? I might even try to justify my actions by saying, you know what? Heterosexuals don't follow God's plan for, for, for their sex life. So why should I? I might even, if I were you, and I'm telling you, I'm saying, I might even sit here and point to God's grace and go, you know what? I'm going to pursue it anyway because he's going to forgive me anyway. I might throw that card on the table. I, I tell you what, I'll be honest with you. I might even teeter right on the brink of ditching the whole God thing. Kind of like the parent who, you know, is... Trying to make sense out of why a car wreck took their child away. And they look at God and go, that's not fair. I quit. Maybe that's how you're feeling tonight. Then hopefully, I'd work through a lot of that. It may take years, by the way. And be reminded, who are you, God? You're a good God, aren't you? Aren't you? You're a good God that promises you're going to make things right one day. And you're a good God that says you'll go with me now. And you'll give me eternal power now and protection and amazing, amazing, amazing Grace, when I fall down. If you're here tonight and this is your door, this is what I want to say to you. And if you have someone in your life that that you love that's knocking on this door, here's some, some words. I'd say something like this to you. I'm not God. I'm not your Holy Spirit. I don't understand why everything happens beyond that this world just doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And it's not my job to talk you into doing something or talk you out of doing anything else. The most loving thing I can do to you or for you is not yell at you or beat up on you or throw stones at you, but simply just point you to Jesus. Just go towards him. And even if I don't understand Jesus totally or why he does what he does and says what he does, I got to tell you this. I trust him. I trust him with Robin's depression. I trust him when things fall apart in my life. So I trust him enough that if he decides to change you, that's between the two of you. But you can still be my friend. Which leads me to this fifth question. 
How should followers of Jesus respond to gay people? And the answer is, just like Jesus would respond to gay people. See, here it comes. You're going to see, now this is the part I've been waiting on. This is where Jim's going to stand there and point fingers and go, now for the gay people, let me tell you, you're a sinner and you're an abomination. And you should be ashamed and you're disgusting, right? This is when you're going to yell at the, 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 the gay people, right, Jim? Mm. I don't know. You know, in 2,000 plus years of church history, yelling at anybody has worked ne- never. <laughs> never. Yelling, picketing, name-calling, joke-telling, shunning, closing church doors in people's faces has never, ever helped anyone or anything. As a matter of fact, the only time in the Bible you find Jesus just raising his voice is that arrogant religious people who slam the religious doors, the church doors in the faces of people who are trying to knock on God's door going, I'm just looking for truth. Before they ever get to experience God's love and grace, they're met with laws and rules and thou shalt not and you better not do this and, and that's a sin. Who wants to stick around for that? Not me. Do you know what the most frequently asked questions of Jesus and his followers were? They didn't have anything to do with God. They didn't ask, now how can I be saved? I mean, they ask him that every once in a while. Hey, can you explain the six-day creation, how the six days are six billion? Can you explain that to me? No, no. Why do bad things happen to good people? No, no, no. You know what? The most frequently asked question that I've read in the Bible that was asked of Jesus was, why why do you, why does your master, why does he hang out with, associate with, eat dinner with, and I quote the Bible, why is Jesus friends with sinners? And then list them, thieves and hookers and gluttons and drunkards. And then I think they probably whisper behind Jesus' back, I bet he's one too. You know what Jesus said back to him every time? Why, why do I hang out with prostitutes? And why do I hang out with addicts? And why do I hang out with people that have fallen way short of the glory of God? Here's why. They're why I'm here. They're why I came. And later Jesus says to the church, they are why we exist. And by the way, don't forget, we are them we are them, to which a lot of Christians sit there and go, no, 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 no. The church that I want to go to is a church where people have cleaned up their lives and they kind of gather to worship Jesus, to which Jesus would respond, no, no, no. The church is a community that's been sent out to a lost and broken and betrayed world to let them know that mercy and love and forgiveness is available from God through Jesus, regardless of what broke up their life or what they lost or what betrayed them. And the only reason we come into rooms like this on Saturdays and Sundays is to acknowledge that none of us can fix our own lives. And we are all desperately in need, and we still are depending on Jesus. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 1 is kind of about, let me tell you how crazy the world is. All these people that don't follow Jesus, all the sexual things that they're doing. Romans chapter 2 is addressed to Christians. And he says this, hey, you Christians, therefore you have no excuse. This is not written to non-Christians. This is written to the church. You Christians, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you who judge past judgment, you do the same kind of things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Meaning, God knows all the facts. He knows all the truths in there. And then when he judges, it's, it's justified. So when you, a mere man, a woman, a human, you pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt? Do you hate? Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and his tolerance and his patience, not realizing that... God's kindness leads you to repentance. The church is a community of people. This is, this is what flatterings is. We're, we're this community of people who kind of admits that our life is a sinking ship. And it doesn't matter how many holes we have in our boat or what caused the holes. We're all in the same boat. We're all the same. We're lost unless Jesus does something for us. 
So the answer to that question, how should followers of Jesus respond to sinners? The answer is the same way Jesus responded to you and me. Verse 4, with kindness, with tolerance, and with patience. Think. Think back to when you decided to put your trust in Jesus. It wasn't when someone told you a scary story about hell. You better, you're going to turn or burn or you'll go to hell. Okay, I believe. No, that wasn't it. It wasn't when someone yelled at you and let you know that God was mad at you and disappointed in you. It wasn't someone told you a really sad story and you sat in here feeling guilty. Think back to when you put your trust in Jesus. Wasn't it realized, this is my story. Wasn't it when you realized that in spite of all your junk, God still loved you and wanted you to be with him? That's my story. I didn't need anyone to tell me I was a sinner. I knew that. What blew me out of the water is that in spite of my sin, Jesus still wanted me back. He still loved me. And if that's how Jesus responds to people, shouldn't people, especially the people that follow Jesus, do the same thing? See, I want to be a church. I want to be a person that's accused of loving way too much. Your church is just way too loving. I don't want to be accused of watering down the truth. I want to be accused of being overly generous with grace. I don't want to be a person or a church that shines a spotlight on three or four sins. As long as you, you do that, and you do that, and you do that, and then ignore all the other sins. They're a little more socially acceptable. I just want to be a church that answers every question with, why do you guys do that? With, I just want to be like Jesus. And we're not perfect. We have a long way to go, but I think that's why I love flat iron so much. Because if you get right to the heart of this place, the DNA of Flatirons is this, that no matter what you've done or what you're doing or what you might do in the future, bring it in. Bring it in here. Bring your sin. Bring your addictions. Bring your mistakes. Bring all your sexual stuff, whatever. This place doesn't just exist for people like you. This place is made up of people like you. The two most common phrases I hear around that here is, is that all you got? And me too. A few years ago, I was at this conference. This is his youth conference, and Tony Campola was the speaker. And he kind of taught this whole uh, the conference. At the end, they had a Q&A time, and somebody raised their hand, and they asked him this question because his wife had just kind of made a public statement. And he said, Dr. Campolo, how do you feel about the fact that your wife has publicly come out in favor of monogamous homosexual relationships? What do you have to say about that? And Campolo looked back at the, at the guy asking the question, and he says, I, I disagree with her. And that didn't seem to satisfy the guy, so Campola went on. What do you want me to do? Hit her? Divorce her? No. We disagree on this, but I, I still love her. You know, I don't know where you land on this talk tonight, on this teaching. You might be sitting here going, this is the craziest stuff I've ever heard on either side of this issue. You may say, you know what, this is the last time we're coming to Flatirons. Is this the deal killer for you? Because all I've tried to say tonight is this. Everyone in the room has fallen short of the glory of God and grace is available to anybody who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and grace is bigger than we think it is and covers stuff that we don't think it does. It, it's amazing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I really encourage you to read the whole chapter tonight. It's kinda, I kind of nicknamed it the sex chapter because everything in there is about sex. It's crazy. But Paul gives a list of, kind of, of the kind of people that went to his church and I don't know if he was writing this down. He was going, oh, yeah, row three, you know, section four. Oh, yeah, I remember. You know, I don't know, but he kind of goes down. And I'm wondering as he's writing down all these things, if he's thinking up about his friends and their stories. Like, he's like, my church is made up of these kind of people, sexually immoral people. There's people that go to my church that are nowhere close to what God has in mind for their purity. And, and I got idolaters in my church, people who worship rocks and crystals and nature. 
I got people in my church that have broken every one of the marriage vows, and I got people in my church that are homosexual offenders. They're actively pursuing it, you know. I have thieves in my church. I've got people that you know break into people's houses. I got greedy people, selfish people, materialistic people, people who've ignored the poor and spent all their money on themselves. Can you believe there are people like that in the world? Then he says, yeah, I've even got people in my church that have swindled the poor out of the little they had. I mean, think back to the very first Christian organization. Judas was in charge of the finance committee. There were a bunch of drunks in Paul's church, addicts, liars, hypocrites. I mean, you think flattering has low standards. I'm telling you, uh, the very first church was, oh, blah, you know? <laughs> and you know what all of those people found in Jesus when God's Spirit began to teach them a better way to live their life and to wash them and heal them and forgive them? Amazing grace. They didn't find amazing grace and then start coming to church. They came to this church in this little town called Corinth and people loved them as they were the day they walked in the door of the church and when they got in there they bumped into Jesus and his amazing grace and his amazing power and he did all the washing and forgiving and changing and healing I want to be that church can we be that church can we be a church that teaches truth and grace I want to be a church that doesn't give up on people. I want to be a person that doesn't give up on people. I want to be a church that gives people the same chance that Jesus gave me. I want to be a church that gets accused of all the same things Jesus was accused of. I want to point to and offer amazing grace to others because I need it. Anybody else? Me too. So God, I just come to you tonight and I just have to apologize. I apologize that I have been so mean and cruel over the years to people that you love. Now I've taken a big spotlight and I've shined on what other people have done and ignored my own crap the whole time. Would you just remind us all that you don't grade on the curve, but that we've all fallen short. And I tend to forget that and beat up on people that... that you love. So God, would you turn us into the kind of church that has a really big front door and very low standards? A church that is just all about the truth of your son, Jesus, and the grace of your son, Jesus. Would you remind us that all of our boats were sinking until you jumped in the boat with us and saved us? God, take our fingers out of anyone's chest and put them back on our own and say, me too. Would you remind us of how amazing your grace is? Can we just sing that together? Can we do that? Amazing grace, how sweet.